There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in Tampa Ranch, Michael We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD, retired out of Manhattan North Homicide Squad. Now, we've been following this Idaho University quadruple murder case. Uh, It's into its fourth week right now. And just yesterday, they put out some information that I find to be, give us a lot of hope to tell you the truth. And I think they're on the right track. And I know that the police withhold a lot of information because it just, when they release it, it really uh, can hurt the investigation. So they put this out yesterday. As you see on the screen, that's a, uh, a stock image of a 2011 to 2013 Hyundai Elantra. And it's not the actual vehicle that they're looking for. It's a vehicle, uh, like what they're looking for. And this is right from the um, Moscow police. At this time, no suspect has been identified and only vetted information that does not hinder the investigation will be released to the public. We encourage referencing official releases for accurate information and updated progress. All press releases and information related to this case are are available at, and there's the the address where you can release it. However, this is the first... uh, information in a while that the Moscow police have released. And it's extremely helpful because if this car has been identified and they don't yet have a license plate number or identify the exact car. However, if they put this out yesterday, I can almost guarantee they've had it for four or five days before that. So they've been working on this for a while. And I think it's very hopeful because if they do find this car, potentially, and not it's not a slam dunk, but potentially they could find the perpetrator. In the search of this car, of course, they would search for trace evidence, for blood evidence, all that type of thing. And of course, match up the car to the person who was driving it. And then you match up other things also, cell phone technology, uh, video. Where did they get, they must have gotten pictures from some camera or some video that allowed them to see this car in the vicinity of the murders on that very night. So that is why this is such a hopeful piece of evidence. And again, what does it do? Well, what they have to do is is they would have to use Idaho State Department of Motor Vehicles and search for all the white Hyundai Elantras between the years 2011 to 2013 that are registered in the Moscow area and and outside give a a perimeter how far do you want to go because this this car could be from outside the area um one of the things that we have in New York City I don't know if they have it in Moscow is we have license plate readers and not only are they at stationary locations but they're also on a lot of the RMPs RMP is cop lingo that stands for radio motor patrol. It's just a fancy three-letter word for a radio car, RMP. So 
a lot of the RMPs in New York City have these license plate readers, and they have the ability to run thousands of plates in seconds and then spit back the information, tell us if the, if the person that's driving the car is wanted, tell us if the car is wanted, tell, if, tell, tell us if the car has summonses on it, all of that information. The other thing that the Idaho police may want to look for is that how many Hyundai Elantras have been pulled over by their police department and issued summonses and just pulled over, period, if they have that information. How many registered Hyundai Elantras do they have in Moscow that are white in color? So it limits down the field a little bit. You have certain information. Do they have good enough information to see? They obviously know someone was driving this car. If that's the pictures, I don't know if it was stationary when they were able to identify it. This is really, really good news. Um, toll booths, easy pass. They run all of the Hyundai Elantras that have gone through tolls in the vicinity and then run the ones that are white in color and run the ones that are 2011 to 2013 and do an investigative workup on that. Red light cameras, if they in fact have red light cameras and speed cameras in Moscow, again, identify the vehicle through that means. Um, ring cameras, apparently in the vicinity of, of the murder, there was almost no ring cameras. Or, or doorbell cameras, for that matter, which they're so commonplace in New York that to think that there's no ring cameras in Moscow, and that could be by design. You got to remember, these homes are owned by um, people that are renting them to students. They don't want to have evidence of what's going on in these houses. Sometimes you know some nefarious activity. And they don't want a record of it also for their own uh, to be sued themselves. They might, may, may not want these ring cameras. That's all I could really think of. I'm going to play a little video on the recovery of this. And everyone that's been covering this case is excited about this, this happening, this occurrence, this little piece of evidence that could really turn out to be a, a big deal. We were watching some of the video earlier today uh, of investigators at the scene uh, of that house on campus where those four University of Idaho students were found stabbed to death now almost a month ago. Okay, this was the scene. Uh, many uh, investigators there with that U-Haul truck uh, were taking some of the personal items of the victims uh, that belonged to the victims and they were returning them to their respective family members. Uh, and we wanna get an update on this story right now too, because uh, police have just uh, announced that they are looking for something that might assist them in their investigation. We're gonna be joined right now by uh, Live Now's own Andy Mack uh, in our newsroom. Okay, Andy, fill us in. What are police looking for and why did they make this announcement now? Well, any news in this Moscow case with the four slain students, there is big news. And we're getting news that they are looking for a potential car and the occupants in it as they are looking for. We had an update from the Facebook page. As you can see, they're speaking, hoping to speak with the occupants of a white 2011 to 2013 Hyundai Elantra with an unknown license plate. Tips and leads. Folks, you notice that they say occupants. So... Is the video or the 
photograph they have on this showing multiple occupants of this vehicle? Or is it showing just someone driving the vehicle? That's something to uh, consider. Have led investigators to look into additional information about a vehicle being in that immediate area of the King Street residence during the early morning hours of November the 13th. Of course, this, the Hyundai Elantra, you can see there just a stock picture as investigators believe the occupants of this vehicle may have critical information to share regarding this case. And as you know, what police have told us is that these four victims were stabbed between three and four in the morning. The four students, they returned just early morning hours of this uh, November 13th in uh, in this residence in Moscow. And it was uh, between three and four that they believed they were stabbed. So certainly looking for the occupants of those uh, potential car, that white Hyundai Elantra. Of course, Lee saw this earlier today. So we followed both of these cases here today uh, as they were over two hours packing up the belongings of the four murdered Idaho college students, including one victim's pink cowboy boots, Moscow police chief James Fry, and at least six other officers were in this residence early this morning. Uh, officers could be loading that U-Haul with plastic bins, boxes, and a white office chair, and also artwork. Fry told reporters at the scene that they had removed, quote, some of the things the fan wanted and other belongings that were there, end quote. So certainly uh, a couple new developments we're getting here out of Moscow, looking into that Hyundai Elantra, that white Hyundai Elantra. So if you have information, if you were in the car or if you have information about who might have been in a car like that in Moscow, Idaho, on the early morning hours of November 14th, Moscow police are asking for your assistance as it's been nearly three weeks and we have no suspect or suspects or even motive in this very tragic case. Andrew? Yeah, you know, Andy, so uh, the information they posted, they uh, offered both an email uh, and a tip line phone number, that phone number 208-883-7180, if you have any information. Uh, and, you know, uh, the viewers have been following along uh, to this story ever since it happened here on Live Now. We've been speaking to our reporters there in Moscow. There have been such few details, scant information released by police. Uh, we've been hearing, though, uh, from the family members of some of the victims, from some of the parents. We've been showing, uh, you know, the vigils that have been taking place as this community is just still in shock because there is such, you know, little information at this point in time. And I know we kind of glean on to little tidbits here. I think this is quite quite large, quite major. They're looking for this vehicle. We don't know why, uh, but as far as this investigation and this story goes, this is as big of a development as we, we have got. Correct, and they usually post on this Facebook about some information. We've only seen a couple press conferences, but like you said, this is one of the bigger tidbits of information. And again, it relates to the car, the white Hyundai Elantra, but also the time frame in which this car might be in that area, as police believe the stabbings occurred between three and four in the morning. So they're looking for this car that may or may not have seen possibly a suspect. So they're hoping to get a break in this case with what the occupants of this car may have seen on those early morning hours back on November 13th. Yeah, it's interesting because we know that they towed away all the cars that were in the parking lot uh, of the house itself. So police are not saying, you know, where in the vicinity of the house on the street they think this car might have been, but they, they want it nonetheless. Uh, Andy Mack there in the newsroom here uh, on Live Now. We appreciate it. Uh, we'll check in. So an exciting development, uh, evidence potentially, potentially could this just have been 
for students returning from somewhere? Possibly, but I think it, it looks pretty good because it's during the time uh, of, of, of the murders. Apparently, the streets of Moscow at, at you know, 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning are empty. And, and the route or the route that you have to take to get to this house apparently is, is quite a circuitous route. So you have to know where you're driving, how you're driving. And this, again, it's, it's, they got to check it out. They have to find out who, in fact, this was. And this is the best lead that we've heard of. Uh, in fact, we all know that the police haven't been releasing much at all. And when we, we look at the pictures and the I have on the screen, I have the four kids on the screen right now, which it's just horrific. And it makes it, you know, we're into the fourth week. Um, everyone's wondering, you hear it all the time on the broadcast media. There's no person of interest. There's no suspect. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes in homicide investigation that occurs, uh, we don't get immediate gratification because we want it. You know, the police have to do an investigation. And the perfect storm of this, of course, is that and some of the criticism we hear is that the, the Idaho police haven't investigated a murder in, in seven years. And that, yeah, that means something. However, they have a lot of resources. They have a lot of assistance and they're working hard on this. They're working around the clock. They have the FBI. They have the state police. So. What we what we've said numerous times as covering covering this case is that's what what's going to solve this case is going to be science, and that's going to be forensic evidence. But this also this is part of real police work. This is part of of looking at the evidence and someone the police have asked, please send us your videos. Send us your still photos of that area, of anything you think might be pertinent to this investigation. And that's what you folks are doing. And I applaud you, the community because, look, no police department can do their job solely by themselves. They need help of, of the community. And that's what you guys are doing. You're helping. You know, you're helping. You know, this has become a huge thing, uh, of course, the, um, the food truck guy, you know, and there's all kinds of uh, uncorroborated evidence. Uh, and, you know, if you watch the video of him, yes, certainly it looks uh, suspicious. He looks suspicious. But the police, the Moscow police, have had the opportunity to bring him in, to interview him. And what we hear all the time from the, from the press and from the news is that he was cleared. No one's cleared. And if I hear that one more time, I'm going to call the news station and say, how many times do we have to tell you? No one is cleared until this investigation is over, until someone's arrested. And then potentially maybe there'll be a witness. But to say that because the police let him go doesn't mean he's cleared. It simply means that if he is a suspect, they don't have enough evidence right now or probable cause to hold this individual. So as I said, I've, I've, I've said this ad nauseum. I, I hate that term, but I use it all the time that this, this potential suspect, because everyone online, you know, if you believe all the content creators, are already have him locked up and uh, they want to throw away the key that he's, he's the perp. 
you know, there's got to be numerous checks and balances to that. And one of them we, we had suggested, Phil and I, is that they should have and uh, taken or asked for a voluntary voluntary swab of DNA and major case prints. I don't know if they did that. Rumor is they didn't, but we don't go on rumor. There's no fact whether they uh, took a DNA swab or or and or or both uh, major case major case fingerprints, which include palm prints. I'm going to play a little bit more of this. The Idaho murder case, Moscow police are asking for the public's help in tracking down the driver of a white 2011 to 2013 Hyundai Elantra with unknown plates. Why? Car was reportedly near the victim's home in the early morning hours when the crime took place. What does it mean? Uh, let's discuss with people who know how to do the job. Uh, former NYPD Sergeant Joe Giacalone and retired FBI profiler and special agent Jim Clemente. It's good to have both of you guys back. Thank you. Thanks, All right. Uh, so let's start with uh, Jim. Uh, what does this mean about the car? There had been some scrutiny about they should have gotten the car sooner. Um, what does this mean, that they just saw it there and that's it? Well, it could be. It could mean that the that we have some potential witnesses here or this could be the vehicle that the offender used. Um, either one of those things is a real possibility and both of them make it very important. Now, without condemning anybody, okay, um, because that's not what this is about. But there is something that is becoming more and more nagging and not just to me, but obviously to one of the victim's fathers. They cleared this guy in the food truck video. I'll remind people that the, the two girls, two of the girls who were killed went to a food. He said it again. He, they cleared. They cleared no one. Don't these people listen? We've told them 10 times. No one's cleared. But they keep going toward that narrative. It's like they have a narrative and they keep going to it. No matter what they're told, it's 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 unbelievable. Food truck after they were out one night before they went home. I'll put that video up so people can remember it. There was a guy there um, that they interacted with. Uh, people who have enhanced the video say that one of the girls wound up uh, telling them to f off, whether it was joking around or not. He's there. He doesn't eat, and then he is seen following them when they leave. And there's been a lot of subsequent reporter uh, reporting. Joe, I'll go to you first on this uh, about who he was and if he's the same guy who lives across the street and all these different details about him. And then we find out that this guy was cleared. What does it mean to clear somebody? And when it happens that early on. It doesn't mean really anything. I mean, the police can say that this person's cleared, that person's cleared, but it's not a get out of jail free card. It's not like they can, they can't turn around tomorrow and say, you know what, here's a pair of handcuffs for you. So a lot of times, listen, the police department knows a lot more that's going on than the general public. And sometimes they say things to keep everyone at ease, including the suspect or suspects in a case like this. And it's not unusual for them to do it. I'm with you. I'm with you. I get that kind of game with Jim. Good answer by Joe Jackalone, but he's still not accepting the answer. He still wants to pursue it when he's told that no one's ever cleared. They may let someone go. Again, I keep explaining this. They may let someone go because they don't have enough to hold that person, or they're going to uh, they're going to continue the investigation till they can collect more evidence. But for some reason, they just do not want to accept this as an answer. Then the guy leaves the country. I mean, wouldn't you do something to like keep somebody like that around? People keep saying, should have taken DNA. Nobody who has a lawyer is going to let you take DNA uh, from them if they're not charged with something. But um, what do you make of that? 
Well, the fact that he left the country, you have to look at when he bought those tickets. I mean, is this something his family planned for many months or mm -hmm. is this something that happened just at the last minute? That's what's critically important. If the family actually lives here and they have plans to return here, I don't think it was such a mistake to let him go because they obviously didn't have enough to keep him if he is even a suspect. Who do you think so they're looking for? It's Jim? just part of the, the process. Who do you think they're Excuse looking me? for? What kind of guy do you think they're looking for from what you've learned? Well, I mean, basically, we're looking for generally somebody who is probably a white male who's in his 20 or 30s, somebody who's familiar with that area, somebody who has freedom of movement late at night, uh, you know, into the early hours of the morning, somebody who I believe either had some kind of relationship with one or more of those victims in that house or he was stalking one or more of those victims in the house. But there is a relationship between him and that house. Because, frankly, this is an extremely high-risk crime. This is not something that just anybody could pull off, and he had to have some connection in order to get away with this. Um, when you say that this is high-risk, why? Well, it's somebody entering an occupied dwelling with six adults, any of whom could have had another knife, a gun, or, or a camera or a phone or a way to attack him in other words when you're planning a crime and and believe me mass crimes mass murders like this are typically planned when you're planning a crime you want to make sure that you have the highest probability of of actually accomplishing it and getting away and i think in order to do that he had to know their schedules he had to know that they were probably drunk or or asleep by the time he came into that house Hey, thank you for watching. So reasonable what they said. I think, uh, you know, when we when we talk about the um, potential perpetrator in this, I don't think anyone would disagree um, that the potentiality that this person is, is a male is about 80% chance that he's a male. That he's a male white, that's another high percentage because that area is specifically has a, a heavy duty white population. If he's from, if we're going to geo profile, geographical profile, there's really good potential that this perpetrator is from Moscow. He lives in Moscow, that he's a native. And there is a, a very, a, another high percentage that this person has encountered these students before and that this person knows, knows about the house because he seemed to be very comfortable going into the house. And the, the one question that um, Chris Cuomo asked that I thought was, uh, was pretty good, he, he, he asked, you know, to describe who is this guy? Who is this guy? And, and the, the FBI, a former FBI agent, was able to go into the fact that someone that commits a crime like this does take this risk of going in. Look, someone lives in that house. You can... In most states in this country, you can use deadly physical force to protect your home. You know, the castle doctrine, you know, someone who's in your home with bad intentions, you don't have to ask them questions, you know. And so that's why a perpetrator of a crime like this, and obviously it's premeditated because he came to the scene with this, this knife that, you know, many are calling uh, without exact evidence that it's a K-bar, a type of Marine Corps type knife based, the pathologist is saying that based on the wounds that it caused. 
So, you know, there's been in on this case, you know, I, I call them talking heads. There's been so many people, retired law enforcement. I'm a talking head myself, you know. I sort of say it with a disparaging, <laughs> a disparaging way, but there's so many talking heads. Some of them know what they're talking about, others have no clue, and they're just really probably reading a book before they go on the air. But I would like to know a lot of them, how many actually murders have they investigated, you know, because many of them have no experience at all, but they're all talking like they're experts. The other night, um, Ashley Banfield had an FBI agent uh, on, I believe his name was uh, McClary, was his last name. And he was one of the best I've seen so far in uh, talking about, um, you know, everyone was saying that Kaylee was targeted based on her wounds. And Steve uh, Goncalves had gotten the information from the mortician who prepared, uh, who, who the bodies were brought to, and I guess prepared them for um, cremation. And he had told Steve Goncalves that Kaylee had much more severe wounds um, than the other, the other girl. And, um, Then Madison, I'm sorry, I don't like to refer to her as the other girl, and Madison Mogan. And, you know, they were sleeping in the same bed. Um, could one of them have been asleep when she was stabbed and the other woke up and fought harder? Could that explain the more severe wounds? Well, I think the danger of trying to 100% uh, interpret these things, there is no... Uh, we can't speak in absolutes. That's what I'm referring to. We can't say, oh, this happened, so that absolutely means this. That happened, so it happened. No, because if these people could predict the future, you know, they would be going to uh, Las Vegas every night and sitting at the tables, but they can't. So you, you make what's called, you know, a hypothesis, an educated guess, and that hopefully that's based upon their experience. I want to play a little bit of Ashley Banfield from the other night where she did have this I thought was one of the most excellent FBI profilers on her show. And he made the most sense to me. Ending that home at 1122 King Road. Each detail we learn, the mystery becomes less cloudy, right? But how do the new details change the profile of the killer? Now that we hear that Kaylee's injuries were significantly more brutal than Maddie's, what does it mean that both girls died in Maddie's room, but not Kaylee's? That is the business of Greg McCrary. He is a former FBI special agent whose job it was to construct behavioral profiles of unknown offenders. In fact, he wrote the book on it called The Unknown Darkness, Profiling the Predators Among Us. Greg, thanks so much for being here. You're a perfect voice in this you know, growing mystery. These new details are significant, and I wonder how a mind like yours would process them. The fact that one of these girls had far worse injuries than the other, and yet was sleeping in a room that wasn't hers in the middle of the night when these murders happened. What do you make of that? Excuse me. We have to be careful that we don't uh, overinterpret uh, the information. And one hypothesis is that she was targeted. Perhaps that may explain the, you know, the, uh, uh, number of wounds that are excessive in her. But I've had other cases where I've worked with multiple murders <clears throat> where one victim has been subjected to the most violence 
and turns out that wasn't a targeted victim. It was uh, the person who had put up the most resistance uh, and enraged the uh, killer. So they, they inflicted, the killer inflicted more wounds on that person, even though that person wasn't specifically targeted. So we could be dealing with, with anything like that. So it's important not to get tunnel vision on a given hypothesis important to have multiple competing hypotheses and then let the evidence uh, sort that out and support one and, and, and maybe dismiss the other. So, so this guy is the best. I mean, that's exactly it. When you see people that are just speaking in absolutes and told, oh, this is what happened. This is why. And it's, I know that's what happened. That then turn, turn the channel. This guy is 100% correct. You could tell he's got the experience. He's written a book about it. He's very calm about it. And when he when he spoke about not speaking in absolutes, he was speaking to me. And I really appreciate his candor and his experience and his knowledge. And, you know, so often we've heard, you know, from the police, from the coroner, uh, multiple reports that the kids were killed while they were sleeping. But then we hear about defensive wounds as well. And then there is this unusual aspect of two additional kids being killed or maybe three additional kids being killed if one or two were the targets. I'd love to get your thoughts on all of that, that, that piece that means like what kind of person would take a knife, not a gun, that's impersonal, a personal knife, a difficult physical endeavor in the middle of the night and take out four people as opposed to the one or the person who put up the fight. Yeah, a lot of personal, a lot of rage, obviously, with this. And it's up close and personal. Um, a knife uh, stabbing, obviously, you have to get very close to the victim. Um, and it's, it's just a different mindset uh, with that kind of a murder than it is. A, a firearm allows you distance from the victim. You don't have to interact with them necessarily up close. So it's an entirely different uh, quality to the uh, uh, to that type of uh, homicide uh, altogether. Now, from the investigative point of view, uh, uh, and again, uh, obviously, just let me say that I haven't seen the crime scene. I don't know. I'm not involved in a case, so I don't really have any inside information. But what you have to keep in mind, especially if there are defensive wounds or a lot of stabbing wounds, which there appear to be here, from an investigative point of view, that's very important because you have the likelihood of the offender's blood being at the scene. In other words, when someone commits a stabbing injury like this or a stabbing murder with multiple uh, stab wounds, there's a high probability they've cut themselves. The knife is in the strong hand, the weak hand is trying to control the victim, there's movement. And then the uh, uh, wound comes to the offender. He cuts himself in the either in the weak hand or with a lot of blood. It's very viscous, can slide down a knife blade and he can cut his strong hand. But regardless of the mechanics of it, um, they have to process that scene very, very carefully because there's likely to be offender blood at the scene, which obviously the DNA will be a link. Now, another uh, lead that would spiral off of that would be to go to the emergency room of the hospital or primary care. Uh, facilities, whatever it might be in the area, uh, and ask if anyone, say, in the days after this had come in. You know, he hit it on the head. We said early on in this investigation that day one, they should do a hospital canvas. Canvas all the hospitals in the area to see if anyone came in with a severe cut to their hand. And lots of times that could be your killer. And uh, he's right on top of it. He, uh, and that's why I know that this guy knows what he's talking
in looking to get lacerations uh, sutured up that maybe were on their hands or their arms. Um, that would be something that, uh, you know, uh, investigators should pursue and, and uh, you know, take a look at. So th those are so great. just some thoughts. Zana's mom, Kara Northington, uh, obviously apoplectic over what's happened and understandably so, but she did tell me exclusively on Friday night that she believes the person who did this knew the kids and that they knew the person and that it was someone they knew and trusted. I know it's difficult for a mom to process a lot of this, but does any of that resonate for you in terms of the rage that it would take to do this to four kids while they were sleeping? Yes. Uh, I mean, it would take a lot of rage, a lot of anger. This is, this is um, you know, very, very violent and multiple uh, victims like this. So it, it could be someone that they knew. It could be someone that knew them, but they didn't know all that well. Uh, there's this phenomena of uh, erotomania where someone gets a fixation on a victim and the victim doesn't really know that, that this fixation is in place. And then the uh, the erotomatic killer gets upset because they feel the victim is cheating on them because they go out with somebody else or, or you know, whatever. And it's a delusional thing and they go in and, and, and commit the murder. But again, we're struck with the unusual nature of this with multiple uh, multiple victims. But again, the crime scene is dynamic. Um, a lot of a lot of it depends on victim offender interaction and, and what happened, which I can't really talk to because I you know have, I'm not familiar with the scene itself. So listen, that the FBI has provided support in this crime. There are upwards of 50 people from the FBI helping. There are several behavioralists helping as well. But the Moscow police remain the lead agency on this case three weeks and a day later. This is a tiny little town. They haven't had a murder here for seven years. And I'm curious, since you've been in the trenches with the FBI, you have landed on scenes like this before, not obviously exactly, but small towns with agencies that don't you know, do a lot more than parking tickets and some drunk tickets. When does it, or does it, should it ever, um, be turned over to another agency to take the helm, to turn to the states, or turn to the FBI experts to take over the investigation? Uh, well, obviously, you have legal jurisdictional issues, and and I will give certainly Moscow police credit for bringing in state police, bringing in the FBI. Uh, sometimes there's the um, uh, there people are too guarded jurisdictionally. Some agencies say, I don't need help, I can handle this myself. So I certainly give them credit for bringing in the outside agencies and hopefully they're listening and following uh, the directions uh, that they're getting from the state police and from the FBI as to how to, you know, how to proceed and in, in, um, taking advantage of the expertise and the resources uh, that the local PD simply uh, doesn't have. But just quickly, 10 seconds left. At some point, yeah. should this be turned over to another agency, a bigger agency, perhaps the biggest agency? Uh, well, again, it's going to be a jurisdictional issue. If they're working jointly with them, um, I, you know, I think they can probably handle this as long as they've got the resources. They're tapping into the resources of federal the government and, and state police. Um, uh, hopefully they can uh, hopefully they can handle this thing. It's difficult, but uh, mm -hmm. they need to. Uh, need to not cave into the pressure, move to a suspect-driven rather than an evidence-driven investigation. You know, I thought he was great. Uh, you know, he really, oh, by the way, they would never take this case away 
from the Moscow police. They have the help they need. They have the assistance they need. They have the FBI. They have the state police. The only time you ever see that is maybe in like a civil rights investigation or something where the state attorney general's office might take it over. But I don't think you would see that in a homicide investigation, even though this is such a high profile case, the emotions are there. The family is pushing hard. And, you know, as far as Steve Gonzalez, if this was my kid, I'd be doing exactly what he's doing. I'd be pushing as hard as I possibly could. You know, when we talk about the hiring of private investigators, is that going to help or hurt the investigation? It could do a little of both. You know, it could do a little of both. It could, they could find that information um, but they're also, the, you got to realize the investigators, the police are not going to share the information with the, um, with the private investigator. So whatever the private investigator finds out on his or her own, they'll report back to the parents, but they're, they're, it's not going to be an integral part of the investigation. And I think that's the biggest thing is that the parents don't appreciate being kept out of the loop. And you can totally understand that, you know. These are 20, 21-year-old kids. They're kids, really, you know, going to college. Who would ever expect this? And just the trauma that the parents must be uh, must be under right now is just, just incredible. So, folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you're not subscribed to our channel, I ask you, please go on our YouTube. Hit that subscribe button. Give us a thumbs up. Ring that bell. If you'd like to support us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And we also have a YouTube channel memberships. And you can see the folks in the chat that have the green font. They're part of our YouTube channel memberships. And we um, we appreciate all these people. They've been supporting us, helping us, uh, you know, being our fans, our subscribers. Some people sometimes, they don't like to be called fans. They'd rather be called subs, you know. So, so I use three things, fans subscribers, and friends. Can anyone object to that? I hope not, you know. So again, uh, Muggs, how you doing, Sarge? Doing well, Muggs. Thank you for asking. Uh, so this case, is this going to be the thing that breaks it wide open, this car? Have they found this car already? And do we just not know yet? Um, important development? What if the people in this Honda personal persons in this in this Hyundai are just witnesses. Could they potentially have seen something at that hour? Or could they be the possible, the perp or the perpetrators in this case? Absolutely. And that's why this is an exciting piece of evidence. It's an exciting, exciting, um, it's an exciting development. Let's see what it develops into. You know, the, the other night, uh, Duty Ron had on uh, Dr. Joni Johnston who's also a forensic psychologist and another great, um, uh, great person, uh, really tremendous credentials. And, you know, when you talk about uh, someone that's that we, we use the term talking head, uh, she, she, she's tremendous. And I want to play a little bit of her interview the other night uh, from Duty Ron's show. And uh, I'll put it on the screen and you can see what, what she spoke about. I mean, the thoughts I have are the, the explanation, which I think is probably most likely is as simple as the perpetrator either didn't know they were there or tried to open the door and it was locked. Um, 
I mean, I think that is the most likely thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel similar similar to that, uh, but I, I also think that, again, this comes down to the targeted uh, uh, subject, which we don't know. We're now trying, we're, we're, it's starting to narrow down, Bill, and I think you can agree with me on this. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Kaylee had the most trauma to her, um, mm -hmm. her body, as we mm -hmm. found out from her father. Uh, I don't think that the police wanted that to get out there, but I, I believe through the um, the funeral director, and I worked after I retired uh, for a funeral director myself, and I know that funeral directors and uh, funeral homes cater to families, obviously, right? Mm -hmm. So if a family was to ask, I want to see my loved one in their state that you received her or him in, no funeral director is going to say, you can't see them. He might or she might say, um, I don't think it's advisable. Maybe you don't want to remember him or her this mm -hmm. way. But I think in this case, he was granted access to his daughter before they had a chance to uh, prepare her. And, and she, they were both girls were cremated. So um, this had to have been before. And she was not going to be presented for a, a viewing uh, at a funeral home. She was directly cremated. So um, at the end of the day, I think dad did get to see his daughter and hence put out that information. Uh, Bill, you're chomping at the bit. Go for it. Yeah, I mean, look, I one of the things I think about that is that, first of all, a mortician is not the one that's qualified to tell you about the wounds and about uh, someone being targeted. And that's clearly where Steve uh, Gonsalves got his information from. However, certain wounds would be self-explanatory. Yeah, And I don't, there's no confirmation to this. People are saying online, oh, her throat was cut, her head was practically, I don't know if that's true or not true. Yeah. But the father wanted clarification and he got it, you know, but he got it from someone who's not qualified, a mortician, to do the reporting to the father. Hey, let's go to the uh, super chats because they're coming in. I don't want them to go away. Joey um, sends in a super chat, $5, and says, for Mr. Cannon, do you have your uh, info about VICAP? Uh, that's the feds use that victim. So, guys, I just wanted to play a little bit of uh, Dr. Joni Johnson. I thought she was fantastic. There's different um, talent levels of a lot of what we see online, a lot of what we see in regards to people that are forensic psychologists, folks that are, uh, you know, talk talking heads, former FBI, former law enforcement. Some of them uh, have no credentials. They accept those three letters, FBI. And if you looked into their career, some of them didn't invest, ever investigate murders, but yet they talk with great uh, knowledge about it. You know, So I question that. But Dr. Joni Johnson, no doubt, is the real deal. And she, she really spoke, as was that Greg McCrary. He was the, of all the talking heads I've seen during this case, he was the most impressive. He, he really spoke to me. And I so agree with him. But I think someone um, loses me when they start acting like they, they have a crystal ball. And then, then, then they totally lose me. You know, folks, there's so many other aspects of this case. Oh, and I just wanted to mention one thing. I got all kinds of, uh, all kinds of grief the other when I spoke about how a, a, um, a mortician shouldn't be the one who isn't qualified to talk about uh, wounds. And, you know, I'm sure, look, morticians see heinous stuff. They see all kinds of 
uh, bad things and uh, they could tell wounds are horrific and stuff. But the person to really get that information from is the pathologist, is the person that conducted the autopsy. And after autopsy, then the body goes to the mortician. And so I think it's clear that Steve Goncalves got his information um, from the mortician. And that is, to me, is a, a little bit concerning. Uh, I just think it's, it's sort of like more rumor and more, even though, look, a mortician sees dead bodies all the time and could say, look, there were some very severe wounds. And we spoke about it, um, again, by talking about the Greg McCrary, the FBI profiler, who I thought was the best that I've seen. There's some really outrageous stuff going on when you hear some of them and some of the things they say. I shake my head. I do not claim at all to be a profiler. What I have is uh, maybe police instincts, investigative instincts. And I'm the kind I'm the guy that you want out there with my team pounding the pavement and conducting the investigation, not uh, making predictions. Um, Vernon J. Gebreth, any detectives here ever read him? Just, yes, I have. I have that book, Practical Homicide Investigation. I think it's up to fourth or fifth, uh, fifth edition. Uh, Libcom, that used to be the Bible of homicide investigation. And, well, I say used to be because I don't think it's been updated in a bunch of years because the book I have never talks about cell phone technology, really doesn't touch much upon DNA technology. So the book is somewhat old, but as I said, it used to be the Bible of homicide investigation, probably in the whole world. And Vernon Gebberth, if you don't know the man, he's a retired NYPD lieutenant, squad commander. Uh, I think he was in Bronx Homicide. And uh, I I thought that book was fantastic. And um, but again, it, it's not it's not up to date, maybe because he's retired. And I don't know if anyone has grabbed the reins of that book and, and wanted to uh, wanted to continue it, but um, it's um, it, it's it's one of the best. So I get practical. It's called Practical Homicide Investigation, and probably it's not a good book for the um, for the layman because it's got really horrific pictures and it's it doesn't pull any uh, it doesn't pull any punches. It shows pictorially. <laughs> Real, some homicide cases that uh, are very explicit. Let me just leave it at that. I'm going to play a little bit of this. Is the homicide uh, is the homicide in Idaho going cold? And I've expressed my feelings on that. Phil Grimaldi has expressed his feelings on that. And no, we don't think so. We think they're hitting on all cylinders. And they're working as hard as they possibly can. And it's not going cold. And a lot of the physical evidence and the forensic evidence and the scientific evidence is just starting to come back right now. And I saw someone in the chat say something about the DNA and the blood evidence. Look, the blood evidence, if the perpetrator cut himself, can be difficult to recover because it's probably commingled with the victim's blood. So can is it much more difficult to recover commingled blood and identify the DNA from it 
than it is if it was a lone specimen. And I would believe, and not being an expert on evidence or blood or anything like that, I would believe the answer to that would be yes. And that's something that I would like to ask Ed Wallace, duty runs, first grade detective, retired NYPD uh, crime scene detective. He would definitively give us an answer on that. Let me play a little bit of this, guys. A killer still out there after four University of Idaho students killed in the middle of the night. Police facing all the pressure in the world to pr produce results. Many wondering, is the case going cold? We're going to get right over to folks. News Nation's Brian Enton joining us live on stream. If you've been following this story, you've been following Brian Enton, my friend, my colleague, Brian, it's great to have you on stream and great for you to be able to take some time out of your morning. It's afternoon here where you're used to reporting from in Florida. It is, of course, uh, the morning there uh, in Idaho. Uh, we're going to ask our moderators on YouTube Live, our social media audience, you can now use hashtag uh, HeyBrian, hashtag HeyJB, either one of those hashtags. We're going to really get to the Q&A portion of our program a little bit quicker than we normally do on this program. So start typing in your questions now. And if it has hashtag HeyBrian or hashtag HeyJB, we can animate it on screen and talk about this story and get a little bit more in depth. But Brian, why don't we just start with you and the very latest from Idaho, any news developments over the last 24 hours that you'd like to share? Yeah, unfortunately, um, it's been really, really slow. There haven't been any significant developments from police. Uh, still no suspect, still no person of interest, but they insist this is not a cold case. So we're hoping that there are things happening behind the scenes that we just don't know about. Um, the families are, are you know, heartbroken, but also getting more frustrated. They don't have new information from what we know from our, our conversations with them. Uh, new today, you know, you know, the house is still a crime scene, JB. They've still got crime scene tape up, even though it's been three weeks almost. So, but today they're actually going to go back into the house. You know, I'd like to just bring something up here. And, and how does, I would like to know, how does, to, to, to turn the tables a little bit, how does the broadcast media define what's a cold case? What is a cold case to them? They keep asking this question, is it a cold case? Do they know what a cold case is? I mean, because they keep referring to that. Uh, they're working on it 24-7. I mean, cold cases sometimes are put on the shelf, and it it's viewed as so difficult that maybe they can't solve it. This is not going to happen with this case, but they keep calling it, a potentially cold case. So I'd, I'd love to ask, <laughs> I wish I could interview the media and, uh, and I love Brian Enton and, uh, ask them, what is your definition of a cold case? What is it? I would like to know that, you know, so. And start removing some of the personal items that belong to the victims, certain things that they can, that they can, you know, remove that I guess wouldn't impact the crime scene. Um, and re start returning those items to the family members. So that'll obviously be, Hopefully, something that that might bring the families a little bit of, um, you know, a little bit of peace. But it, it's hard hard to imagine what what they're going through right now. It's just like pure hell and torture with this killer still on the run. Would, how would you describe the relationship right now, Brian? I'm gonna, and a lot of comments are just now coming in, and I'm going to animate them on screen here in just a second. How would you describe being a reporter on, on this case? And of course, you and I have covered uh, other stories together. How would you describe right now the relationship between law enforcement? 
and the victim's families slash the public overall is fractured a, a good word as far as the lack of updates and, and the lack of anything that they can go on to hold on to hope that there's going to be justice in this case? Yeah, I think there's definitely frustration that there's not more information being released, but there also does seem to be an understanding among a lot of people that like they're trying to con- like protect the integrity of the investigation, which is ultimately the most important, you know, like what they tell the media, even what they tell the families at this point, um, you know, I guess isn't more important than finding the killer, obviously. Um, so I, th- I think there's an understanding there that Again, just a hope, since we don't know what's going on, a hope that they are making significant progress behind the scenes. But they, you know, in their latest update yesterday, I mean, they still say officially that they don't have a person of interest or a suspect um, identified. And what do you make? What do you make of that nearly being a month later? I mean, we don't have a, a suspect person of interest. What's your analysis of it? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty... Um, shocking to me i mean um you know just the 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 murders were so brutal um i mean four young people stabbed um it happened in a pretty dense area that's something like you don't always appreciate from watching the video but like when you're out there the house is in a really packed in neighborhood there's all houses right around there's some really big apartment complexes right there um so i would have thought someone would have seen something you know, when I showed up here, I figured there's got to be cameras. There's got to be ring ring doorbells. Like you're in Tampa. I mean, you know, everybody has a camera. I mean, that, and that's just not the, that's just not the case here. I mean, it's a small town. There hasn't been a murder in seven years, um, so people don't have cameras. I mean, there's like at least that we've been able to find. There's like no cameras anywhere around that house. The fraternity party where they were at partying before the murders. There's no cameras there. So um, I think you know that's made it a lot more difficult. Let's get to the questions and comments that are coming in. We've got another six to seven minutes with Brian Enton of News Nation. Let's go to True Crime with Shannon on YouTube. So, folks, you know, there's uh, Brian Enton, great news reporter for News Nation. Uh, he's on every major case that that we cover. It seems like he's all over the country. It seems like he doesn't get enough sleep. <laughs> he's always working and he's always out in the cold. He's freezing. He's on location. But he's a reasonable guy. But I think the, the the press gets sort of a narrative and, and they run with it. But this case will never become a cold case. Trust me, it will not become a cold case. It's too important. It's too big a case. You know, someone spoke about um, that they had an HVAC guy going uh, to the house. Could that potentially be to try to collect DNA in the ventilation system very well could be i've never seen that done before but there's there's all kinds of new technology they talk about uh touch dna um as i said a lot of the the things that the evidence that we don't know about uh hairs fibers you know we've besides of hopefully our show and duty ron's show and other uh, content creators on YouTube entertaining you. We also, I would like to, and I know Duty Ron would like to, and Ed Wallace would like to, is to educate you, you know? And we talk about Locard's theory of exchange. And that's Dr. Edmund Locard that spoke about the transfer of evidence. So when a human being goes into a crime scene, he or she leaves something 
from his or her body in that crime scene. I mean, the greatest example of that is that the, the hair on your head, if you have hair, you lose hundreds of pieces of hair every day. You're not aware of it. It falls off your head. falls all over the place. So even just that, what if they could find even a hair fiber? There's DNA. You can identify DNA from hair fibers. Um, something from someone's shoes. I would find it hard to believe that in this case that there were not bloody shoe prints left at the crime scene. There would have to be. How could the killer not have stepped in the blood? Nearly impossible. And things like that. Um, we Everyone agrees, almost everyone that's ever investigated a murder, that this killer must have cut himself. And the reason for that is that, not to get super graphic, but when someone stabs someone, if the knife hits bone, it stops the knife and the person's hand slides up the handle on the knife past the handle and to the blade and can cut themselves. And it also, when the knife gets blood on it, it becomes very, very slippery. So that makes the, and times four, this individual murdered four people. And do, do you think at some point he changed knives? I don't think so. I think he probably used the same murder weapon on all four victims. So therefore, we should expect to see, and I'd be surprised if we don't have it, there should absolutely be blood DNA in that crime scene, you know, as well as potentially fibers. If the perpetrator came in physical contact, his body with one of the victims, something from his clothing could be left on one of the victims. Pathologists and people that conduct autopsies, they're trained to recover evidence like that. We always speak about potential DNA evidence that could be under the fingerprints, uh, excuse me, could be under the fingernails, I said fingerprints, could be under the fingernails of one of the victims. That's very common. That's why in every single autopsy, the pathologist scrapes underneath um, underneath the nails. Many people were concerned in this case, uh, was there a sexual assault here? And that was cleared right in the very beginning. And that was uh, definitively said, no, there was no sexual assault here. In almost every homicide investigation, they, they usually, if it's a female, they usually do a rape kit. I don't know if that was performed on this, but early on in the investigation, uh, they were able to say that there was no uh, there was no sexual assault, and I think that's important because not only uh, it answers questions about the motivation and who this perpetrator potentially is. Is he is he a sexual predator? And by clearing out that possibility, that eliminates that from you know from all the profile of saying, oh, this is a sexual predator um that was that was cleared right away and um we were told no uh it's not a sexual predator this wasn't about a sexual attack it appears that this attack these four murders were about um rage anger severe rage by someone who encountered 
all four of these kids or one of these kids had something against one of them? Who was targeted? Remember early on in the investigation, they said this case was both targeted and personal. And then they walked that back a little bit. But is there a great potential that this, in fact, was? That this was targeted and personal? I think it absolutely was targeted. And, I mean, my feelings, again, I am not a profiler. I am not a behavioral analysis person. I never took a course in that. Uh, so I, I think that this has something to do with rage and someone getting dissed. I'll use a street word, disrespected. Someone was disrespected and held that for a while, held that inside them. And it simmered and it heated up and to the point where this person obviously planned this, you know. Uh, Jenny Peach, hello. Gene Panic, Moonlight View, hello, guys. Uh, thank, thank you, everyone, for joining me today in the show. I think it's, it's very interesting and very hopeful that this car is a, uh, the first piece of evidence that we can we can sort of hang our hat on and sort of be thankful about and think that potentially this could lead somewhere. And could it also be a dead end? Could it also turn out to be nothing? I don't think so. I don't think so. How many cars were driving around at 2, 2.30 in the morning in this very specific place? On that night, on a Sunday, Sunday early morning. Remember, this happened Saturday into a Sunday. So I think this potentially is outstanding evidence. And I, and I said early on, too, I think that the Moscow police had this much sooner than yesterday. I think they probably held this for four or five days. And uh, they came out with it because I think they needed some good press to get to put it out there for everyone. Um, you know, there's all, again, there's all kinds of theories of why did this happen? Why did this happen? And this was another thing uh, that Ashley Banfield had on the show. Could town-gown conflict be a possible motive? Let's play a little bit of this. These are all interesting theories. Moscow, the University of Idaho student body, makes up almost half of the town's population of just under 26,000. And Moscow is no different from most college towns. There's a dynamic between the students who come to study and the town residents who live there permanently, and they don't always get along. It is called town versus gown, and it was a topic in last year's mayoral race. The current mayor noted the school's immense contribution to Moscow's economy and called the university students, quote, importers of cash who, quote, bring money from mom and dad. But another complained that the school's, quote, learning climate had given way to a, quote, social climate, with students thinking they should, quote, have something just because they want it, end quote. The question tonight, though, is after 24 days without so much as a solid lead, could local resentment, justified or not, have spurred a deranged resident to commit four horrific murders? I turn now to the man who wrote the book on the subject. Steve Gavazzi is a professor um, at the Ohio State University's College of Education and Human Ecology. He's also a family therapist. His book is called The Optimal Town Gown Marriage. Lauren Peterson, 
also, or Lauren Patterson, sorry, also joins us. She is a reporter for Northwest Public Broadcasting and Spokane Public Radio. She's also a Moscow resident, and she went to the University of Idaho. Welcome to both of you. Steve, let me begin with you. What kind of conflicts really are the most common when it comes to town versus gown? No, great question. Uh, there usually are two typical issues that are um, part of most town gown conflicts. Uh, the first, which goes without saying, is student misbehavior. And the second has to do with real estate. Now, student misbehavior is self-explanatory. It's often fueled by alcohol or other substance use. The additional piece about real estate happens because universities are tax-free entities. And so anytime the university takes land to further develop it for the university, it goes off of the tax rolls and so therefore no longer becomes an income source for the municipality. Well, that I could see uh, would rub a lot of locals the wrong way. All of a sudden, they don't get that uh, that tax boon. But, you know, I wonder, Lauren, if, you know, Moscow, there's a real range, right, of how some town-gown relationships can be. And since you live there, you worked there, you uh, went to school there, what's your estimation of the town-gown relationship with the University of Idaho? Yeah, Ashley, it's an interesting question. Moscow and the university, I really see them as just integral and really united. The University of Idaho is actually the number one employer in Moscow with nearly 2,000 employees. So you take the University of Idaho out of Moscow and you just have another tiny Northwest farm town. We do have issues where we're sort of landlocked with really valuable farmland used to grow wheat and lentil and other agricultural crops. So there is a sort of push and pull between how much do we reserve for the agricultural you know, community and how much do we expand to build more housing for both residents and students who want to live here. Maybe there's different dynamics when it comes to being in a bigger city with, uh, you know, college students and how they're treated by the town. But as someone who studied journalism here, I was a student here, I'm now a reporter here and a resident. I just really feel like Moscow and the University of Idaho are united and in general have just a wonderful relationship back and forth. You know, interesting, folks. And I, I had uh, brought this up earlier on in this investigation, and I, I predicted again. And I'm not a profiler; I just have street instincts at the at the very best. I predicted that the person that did this is what we used to refer to upstate. I went to college at the state university system. I went to Nassau Community College, Buffalo State. I went to, and I went to uh, John Jay College, but Buffalo State. And a lot of these SUNY colleges in New York State, there's a relationship like what they're speaking about. Uh, and we used to, they would call the locals townies. It was sort of not a, um, it's not sort of a, a nice term that I don't think the locals appreciated been to be called townies. Uh, but there, there's not always a great relationship between students at universities and for the very reason that the professor that was on first spoke about is that alcohol abuse by the students, misbehavior. And there's also a, a sort of an attitude in some of these depressed towns that contain these universities. Um, they view the students as rich kids, you know, and the only reason they put up with the university is that it brings, in the case of Idaho, 2,000 jobs to the area. And it 
pops up here. You got a university that is the economy of the town of Moscow, right? That is the economy. And we spoke about certain things that we were a little bit baffled about. And one of them was, um, and I'm going to say it, even though the town doesn't want this, why are there no wanted posters up all over the place? And why haven't they come up with a huge reward? And we answer that by saying we think there is no wanted posters because even though that potentially could help them uh, solve this case and, and identify a perpetrator, it keeps it out there and reminds people that there was a murder right in this college town. And what does that do to the Idaho University? It hurts their enrollment. And it's all about everything's always, it always comes back. Everything always comes back to money. It's not about money. Oh, yes, it is. Then why don't you let them put those uh, posters up if it's not about money? You know, uh, think about the, the house that these four murders were in. What, is, what do you think that that owner of that house is going to have to do with that house after this? He's probably going to have to knock it down. Who would want to live there? Uh, after there was a quadruple murder in this house. So all of those things are factors. And the factor about, you know, not putting up a huge reward and not handing out flyers, help us help you. That's one of the things we do all the time on the NYPD. When we're baffled to, for a murder case, we'll go out on the highway. We'll go out to, into the neighborhood and we'll have a picture of the victim or victims and we'll have help us help you. Uh, and we'll hand out those flyers. And sometimes it spurs someone on to call us, to give us even anonymous information that can point us in the right direction. But, you know, as we said, there seems to be earlier on when they said uh, this was both personal and targeted, and they said, but no one is in any danger. That was the worst misstep and the worst misspoken language they could have possibly used because how could you say that no one is in any danger when the killer is still out there? How could you say that? And they had to retract that, and again, they have to pull that back in. Uh, Marsha uh, Armstrong, the owner will claim disaster, tear it down, and build a new one. Well, if he has to pay, you know, four or five hundred thousand dollars to build a new one, unless he's it's covered by something. I don't see him doing that, but I can't see anyone wanting to live in that house. You know, typically when there's a heinous crime committed, look at Sandy Hook. They knocked that whole school down. How would you like to send your kid to a school that 16 five-year-olds was slaughtered? I don't think you would, you know? And uh, so, yeah, uh, Black hair chick 10. I like that name. Knock down the house. I think they're going to have to. Jory, raise it. You guys in the chat, you are agreeing with me, I see. Uh, Seagate 1, tear it down, of course. Yeah, I, I don't think shooter, wrecking ball. Yeah, I don't think he's going to have a choice, you know. And uh, it wasn't the obviously the owner of the house's fault, but based on what happened there, uh, I don't think they're going to be able to uh, to have anyone rent that house ever again. Folks, Joe Murray, if you're looking for a great attorney 
in the New York City metropolitan area, Joe Murray is your man. Joe's a retired former NYPD police officer and a fantastic defense attorney. If you have anyone in your family, friends that needs a great attorney, Joe is your man. Joe also is a huge, huge uh, supporter of Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. He's been a frequent guest, but he's been so busy with his law practice lately, we haven't been able to get him on the show. But we really appreciate him. That's Joe Murray Esquire, counselor at law. Um, so, folks, that's that's where we are right now. And I think I'm really, really hopeful, so hopeful that they're going to solve this case. You know, all of the, um, obviously, all of the news stations, uh, everyone is is hoping and praying that this case is solved. And, you know, a lot of people are, are reporting that, oh, why is it is, is in the fourth week? Why is it not solved? Why is there no person of interest? Well, it's not always, you know, it's not always TV. It's not always, uh, you know, we get self-gratification that we get immediate gratification. This is a real tough case, and the police are working as hard as they can. Folks, thank you so much for tuning in today. Uh, again, pray for the families of these kids. Pray for these kids. And say it, another prayer that this case will be solved and we get the person or persons that's responsible for this. Have a great day for Police Off the Cuff. God bless. One episode, just ain't enough.